Hello, welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention, and each month I chat with a distinguished injury researcher or practitioner about topics of their interest. Today we'll be having what's essentially a fireside chat with Dr. Mark Rosenberg. We'll be covering his career, his thoughts on what he's learned over the years and what he still thinks we need to be learning if we want to successfully address some of the challenges ahead. But by way of introduction, I do want to touch on a couple of aspects uh, that are immediately relevant. And that's his time as President and Chief Executive Officer for the Task Force for Global Health. Now, this was from 2000 to 2016. And uh, under Dr. Rosenberg's leadership, the task force grew to be one of the largest non-profit organizations in the country. Prior to joining the task force, Dr. Rosenberg served for 20 years with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And he was involved with early work in smallpox eradication, enteric diseases, and HIV AIDS. He was instrumental in establishing CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. We'll cover in his, our conversation his training, but uh, his areas of expertise and specific interest included uh, a broad range of areas, including infectious diseases, mental health, uh, motor vehicle injuries, firearm injuries, suicide, intimate partner violence, and sexual assault. Dr. Rosenberg joins us from his home in Atlanta, where he's accompanied throughout our conversation by his dog, that you can hear loudly at times, fast asleep in the background. Hello, Dr. Rosenberg. Hi, Rod. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I just think the perspective that you have brought to injury prevention, that you've brought to your own work and to a lot of students, um, is pretty extraordinary itself. So you may shake your head, but just what I know about you has really confirmed those suspicions. Injury control is very lucky to have you in it, Ryan. Thank you. I introduced you a few moments ago, very much in the context of what you've achieved. And, uh, but I also mentioned that it'd be nice if we could have a fireside chat, really, just to explore some of your ideas. So my first question is really going to be more about who you are. Difficult first up, but uh, I don't think we can separate what you've achieved from the person, uh, Mark Rosenberg himself. So are you happy to give us a bit of an insight into how you came to do what you did and why you took the path you chose? Okay. There is sometimes a very quiet snore from my little dog, but she's quiet. I wish I knew exactly why I took the path I chose uh, some of it, it, it just happened and things presented themselves. There were opportunities. It's not a path that I ever would have forecast or predicted. Uh, remember that I had roommates in college who had a plan for what they were going to become and how they would get there and how they would get to the top of their field. But I think that it's impossible to have a plan for your life. I think things happen that never could have been predicted. I never would have predicted that I would have ended up in injury control of all fields. I hadn't even heard of it when I was doing most of the planning early on. Um, but I ended up there and in global health because of 
turns that my life took that were completely out of my control. But why am I who I am and what, why did this happen? And I guess um, a son, a husband, a father, a friend, a student. And uh, I think these things have been very important to me. And I think my parents were people who were very committed to doing social good in this world and working to help others. Um, my father was the kindest person I have ever known, kind and generous, uh, soft-spoken, and a, a very, very good man. And my mother was a physician who cared deeply about her patients and took care of patients for 63 years. She was a general practitioner. Her parents were immigrants from Russia and Poland, and they came over with nothing when they were 17. And they thought that my mother should have a good profession, i.e. teaching. And even though she wanted to be a doctor, they said, first try being a teacher. And if you don't like that, then you could go to medical school. So she tried that, she didn't like it, and she went to medical school at a time when there were very few women physicians. Um, but then she went into private practice, solo practice. She had her own office attached to her house. Uh, she worked for 35 years for Planned Parenthood, volunteering one day a week for all that time to help others, but also helped her patients um, and cared about them. She practiced so long that she was taking care of the grandchildren of babies she had delivered. And she charged them all the same price that she charged when she started out, $5 an hour. Um, and so I think with this commitment to helping others and service and caring and compassion that I saw, saw and learned from them, I think that influenced me some. Um, how else did I become what I am? I used to go to medical conventions with my mother and uh, I decided I'd like to be a doctor because I'd like to go around and get all those free samples they gave out at the conventions. I became a little more sophisticated in my preferences later on in life, um, but I thought I would become a doctor. And in college, I became very interested in politics and how you got things done. And I had a wonderful, wonderful uh, tutor in college. Even though I was a biology major, I was able to get a special year-long tutorial in American political theory from Barney Frank, who was a tutor in my house, who went on to be a congressman and one of the smartest people I ever met. So that influenced me. And I did go to medical school and was interested in anthropology, spent some time studying cures in Mexico, um, and was also interested in photography and journalism. I think most of my time in college was spent on the college paper, probably 80 hours a week, taking pictures and writing. And that storytelling really influenced me quite a bit. 
after medical school, I decided I should become a real doctor, even though I was interested in psychology and psychiatry for a long time. I thought, gee, I've already spent all this time studying organic chemistry and biochemistry and physics. I shouldn't just go be a psychiatrist and throw this all away. I should become a real doctor, an internal medicine doctor. I did that. I was very interested in infectious diseases. And then got involved in public health at CDC. Spent time after CDC teaching. And I was teaching medical sociology and working on a project about patients. And uh, I followed six patients. I wanted to tell their story because first I wanted to learn what it was like to be a patient. And uh, I thought that if other physicians and other medical students knew what it was like to be a patient, they would be a little more sensitive to the patients, uh, not just interested in their biochemical lab results, but interested in the patients and their lives. So I did a photography project where I followed six patients for periods between six months and two years to try and tell the story, what it's like to be sick, what it's like to be a patient, to see a doctor, to be hospitalized, and how it affects their family and their work and their life. And this experience had a huge impact on me. And uh, I realized that I thought I knew what it was like to be a patient because I had a mother who was a doctor. I spent time with her. I was in medical school. I took care of patients. I was an intern, a resident. I worked with a private physician taking care of his patients. And so I thought I knew what it was like. And what I found out from spending this time with them was that I knew what it was like to be a doctor, but I didn't have the faintest clue what it was like to be a patient. And that to order a chest X-ray on a patient took 10 seconds writing the order down in the medical order book. But what that meant for one of the patients I followed was that on Christmas Eve, she was transferred from her bed to a metal stretcher and she had metastatic breast cancer that had riddled her spine. Every movement was painful, but she was transferred to a steel stretcher, wheeled through the halls, down the elevator, through the basement, to the x-ray, transferred back to the x-ray table. Each of these position shifts was painful for her. And she was taken off the x-ray table back on a metal stretcher where she waited outside while the x-ray technicians had their Christmas party. I waited with her this whole time and went with her the whole time. And finally, she was taken back to her room and transferred again back to her bed. And that experience that she had was worlds apart from the experience of a doctor who wrote chest x-ray in the order book. And I think had I not accompanied her on that chest X-ray expedition, I wouldn't have known this difference. I wouldn't have known what it was like for her. But each of the six patients I followed taught me so much about that different perspective. 
and another young woman who was depressed and suicidal and shot herself. And I followed them as well for years and told their stories with pictures. So I think that experience of learning from the patients or the victims perspective uh, was a real eye-opener for me and how powerful the stories were. Their effect not just on me, but I think reaching other people had big impacts on my life and what I chose to do. You started off by mentioning that the risk of chasing goals is that you pass life by. You focused on life itself and injury then became a goal. Um, But your approach to the challenges of injury seems to be so better informed because of your trying to understand perspectives, other people's perspectives about the problem. Injury is an area where researchers can create a career. It's an area which interrupts other people's careers on the periphery. Uh, You described a situation where the people you were involved with had injury and other conditions that you came across that were so central to their life that it actually they had to, to build their own life, their new life, around the consequences of that problem. Do you think at the moment we've separated the world into compartments so much that we're struggling to achieve what we're really setting out to achieve and that your approach, that understanding is not just a good way to tell a story to achieve a goal, which is quite right, but it's a way of understanding the way that the world is. And unless you do that, you're not going to be effective in research or in public health. It's a really good point, Ryder. I think understanding the impact on injury on life is really, really important and really critical. I don't think everyone has to go through what I did or have the experience I've had to be able to contribute. And there are many people in the injury field who analyze data and statistics and are very, very good at that and make very important contributions. Um, I think for me, my life has been so much richer understanding the experience behind the injury and seeing the faces. A mentor and a very, very good friend of mine, Bill Fagey, said that he said this about CDC and about the Task Force for Global Health, which he started. He said, if we are to retain the position we have where we are making important contributions to the health and well-being of the world, it will be because behind every program we take on, behind every decision we make, we see the faces. And he meant see the faces of those who are sick, those who are suffering, those who are injured. But remember that these numbers are not just statistics, but the people. And to have a better idea of the people and the impact on them. You know, I've looked at this field of gun violence for 40 years, and I'm I'm still learning a lot about it. But one of the things that impresses me is that the numbers are very high. 45,000 gun deaths in the last few years in the United States. And if you look at 
the value of those lives, the U.S. Department of Transportation puts a value on a human life for their cost-benefit analyses of $12 million. And if you multiply 12 million times 45,000, you have a really big number. You have a number that goes to hundreds of millions of dollars in costs. And that doesn't even include the costs of medical care and rehabilitation. But those costs, as high as they are, millions, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars are dwarfed by the social costs, the burden, the disruption and destruction of families. When one person is killed, a family is destroyed, a marriage dissolves, other kids are affected for their whole life. Communities are affected and burdened. People live in fear. School children who have to do active shooter drills may have their whole life impacted by the drills, even if they never see the gunman. And these social costs, economic costs of injury and the burden of injury, I think we haven't really taken into account. We didn't do it when we looked early on at the burden of injury and tried to put costs on that. And I think we were talking about $300 million for the first cost of injury study. And those are the costs that are real, but are less than the other costs that are very real, but just harder to quantify. So yeah, I think the impact on people, and not just the victims directly, but many people are victims of every injury. You mentioned uh, a little earlier that you were very interested, even before you became an injury practitioner on creating change and the relationship between politics and the societal levers required or or politics being a societal lever to allow you to organize or reorganize society. Researchers who look at data uh, can describe the size of the problem. They can look at uh, perhaps identifying causes of problems. But you seem to be suggesting that the solutions to problems of this kind, of this magnitude, where individuals are absolutely involved and carry the consequences that uh, we need to be finding ways to create uh, interventions right down in the very hearts of the societies where the problems sit. So how have you felt that um, the the big questions uh, can be addressed by social and and structural change to get at those points, which end up being individually uh, manifest, but manifest in a way that uh, uh, they're distributed across a society where the interventions can can be social in their scope. It's another really good question, Rod. I went to CDC initially and worked on infectious diseases, enteric diseases and smallpox, And then I went back almost 10 years later after I had studied more about infectious diseases and psychiatry and public policy. And I was asked again by Bill Fagey, who was the director of CDC at that point, to start looking at violence as a public health problem. And this was not widely accepted as a public health problem. 
when I came back, we were given an office. It was in the sub-sub basement of building three. And my office was a converted men's room. They had removed all the fixtures, but all the plumbing from the whole building still went through my office. And so whenever anyone flushed the toilet in the three floors above us, five floors above us, we had to stop talking because it sounded like a waterfall. So we were given an old bathroom in the sub-sub basement of a minor building. And a lot of people in public health thought that's just where we belonged. They said violence is not a public health problem. It's not even an infectious disease. What are you doing here? And I had asked Bill Feige, I said, how are people going to respond to us looking at violence as a public health problem? He thought it was important because he looked at the causes of death and disability in the United States, and he realized it's no longer infectious diseases, but injuries and violence were among the leading causes of death for people in the United States. He said CDC is going to expand its mission and take this on. And I was a little more skeptical. I said, what are people going to think about us? What are they going to think about me coming back? And he said, well, you're the right person to do this, you know, because you know epidemiology. You were an EIS officer here. You know social sciences and behavior. You're trained as a psychiatrist. You know public policy. You trained at the School of Government. Um, And besides, you'll be able to show people that you're not completely crazy because you also trained in infectious diseases. So come here and try this out. But it was an uphill push, not only at CDC, to convince them that injury and violence were public health problems, but public health in general across the United States. And um, there were people who said, you know, CDC is the Centers for Disease Control. Injury is not a disease. Violence and gun violence is not a disease. What is CDC doing having you there, having this problem be studied? So we went back to study this problem, and we developed what we called the public health approach. And we said that it's based on science, it's focused on prevention, and it's collaborative by necessity. And when we talked about based on science, we said that it's not based on rocket science, It's based on four simple questions that we need to ask and answer. The first question is, what's the problem? Who gets shot, for example? Under what circumstances? Where? When? With what kind of weapons? What's the relationship between the shooter and the victim? And are these increasing or decreasing? But that's the first question, what's the problem? The second question is, what are the causes for gun violence It brings up the question, what's the role of alcohol and drugs? What's the role of gangs? What's the role of easy access to guns? What's the role of mental illness? What's the role of poverty, racism, hopelessness? But what are the causes? The third question we said as part of the public health approach is to ask what works? What kind of interventions can prevent these shootings from happening in the first place? 
does it work, for example, to require licensing of gun owners and registration of guns? It certainly seemed to work for cars. Licensing and registration are the fundamental building blocks of motor vehicle safety in this country. And so we said, does that work? Would it work to arm teachers at schools? We have a lot of politicians advocating that before they even know whether it will save more lives or kill more kids. But what works? That's the third question. And we said the only way you can find out what works is by testing it and evaluating it. You can't just decide in your mind, this is a nice intervention. In theory, it should work. And the fourth question we ask is, how do you do it? How do you implement it? Once you find an intervention that works, how do you translate it into policy or legislation? How do you scale it up from one area or one state to cover the country? So those are the questions we said we need to ask and answer. What's the problem? What are the causes? What works and how do you do it? And uh, we set about trying to do research to answer those. A lot of surveillance systems and statistical data to answer that first question, what's the problem? And this applies not only to gun violence, but this applies to any injury problem. Uh, same thing for motor vehicle safety. That's the other leading cause of injury death in this country and around the world. But the same questions can be asked and answered for all injury types, for all types of violence, not just gun violence, but child abuse, child sexual abuse, sexual assault, elder abuse, intimate partner violence, suicide. The same questions. It's amazing how helpful they are in asking them and answering them. For a lot of areas, what I think the field needs to do a better job with is not what's the problem. We're getting pretty good at that, at understanding the problem. We're getting pretty good at understanding the causes, but there's a lot of work to do in what works and really rigorously evaluating interventions. But what strikes me now is the field, the question that really is in greatest need is how do you do it? How do you scale it up? You know, scientists and public health scientists were really caught back with COVID. We thought that if we develop a vaccine, a vaccine that works, that will take care of the problem. The people would come running to line up to get vaccinated, to get their parents vaccinated, to get their kids vaccinated. We thought they'd come running and lo and behold, we discovered that a big part of the population was hesitant, if not outright resistant, to getting vaccinated and getting the shots. And this was the first time that in my lifetime that I ever realized there was such resistance to effective public health measures and really made us realize that this question of how do you do it is really much more complicated than we thought. And in the injury field, too, it's very complicated. We have an idea of some things that work for motor vehicle safety. We know that driving drunk is not a good idea. We know that texting while driving is not a good idea. And we tell people, don't do it. Don't do this. And they do it. So a lot more work in that area. I've got a nice story to match yours. When I went uh, 
soon after I graduated in medicine uh, to injury. And I went there through a route that from emergency medicine. Uh, it seemed to make sense that preventing car crashes was more sensible than managing massive trauma of young kids who'd otherwise well, but but had um, come to grief on the road. But uh, my colleagues in medicine had asked me why I'd left medicine because most of my interventions were with councils, they were with transport, uh, they were with schools, they were on causal pathways which didn't appear to be medical. But now, as you say, 40 years later, uh, clinical medicine is recognising that a lot of the interventions that are needed to prevent the, the classic diseases uh, are also social in their context. And uh, working with somebody on a vaccine is as important as having a vaccine for them uh, when they when they say yes, they want it. No, you're right. And even telling people what they can do to make themselves safer doesn't always get a lot of uptake and a lot mm. of compliance. Mm. So you've um, come there indirectly to things that we've learned and things that we still have to learn in the area of injury. So we've got a few minutes, uh, unfortunately, just a few minutes left to talk about uh, some some questions for us that you'd like. I've asked a lot of questions and you've been very generous with how you came to be where you are. But as we've hinted in our chat and I outlined more specifically in my introduction, you've been in the centre of conversations for many, many years, uh, the big conversations in injury prevention and control. Uh, where would you like to pass the next generation of work to us to do? So where are the areas that you think is a field? Uh, do you have any pointers or is it something that uh, we're all just finding our way through as best we can? It's a really good question and a hard question. Um, I think that when we started the field of um, gun violence prevention, it was not accepted as a public health challenge or a public health question. Even the problem of injury control had been started outside of public health, really. A lot of the work that had been done in motor vehicle safety, um, there had been good people looking at the problem for a hundred years, at least when the first car was developed and the first car killed a pedestrian. Um, people had been thinking about these questions. So we certainly built on outstanding work that had been done but it, the field was relatively small, and there were not many papers in the scientific literature about injury control in general. I think one of the important things about establishing a center for injury control and prevention was bringing a focus to this work, getting it more widely recognized and accepted, bringing more young researchers into the field, bringing publications into the field. It's hard to imagine that the publication Injury Prevention that you have taken to new heights didn't even exist at that point. And other injury control publications didn't exist. And official medical journals and public health journals weren't writing papers about injury control. So establishing the center was part of a larger effort to bring recognition, to bring funding, to bring researchers and advocates to this field and give them a base of support and give them things that work that they could go out and implement and put into practice. 
So the field has grown in ways that are wonderful to see, really, really good to see. I think we still have to do a lot of work in specific types of injury. You know, these days in the United States with these mass shootings and um, school shootings and gun suicides, some aspects of gun violence are getting a lot of tension, attention. But school shootings represent less than one half percent of all of the gun homicides in this country, less than half percent, but they probably get 90% of the attention. And uh, what is the most outstanding in my mind as a disparity and, and inequity in injury is that young black men, 19 to 24, used to be killed at eight to 12 times the rate of young white men. And this is when I was at CDC, and I thought this is a totally unacceptable disparity, and it needed to be addressed. Well, that part of the problem didn't get much attention, and now the ratio is no longer 8 to 12 times. It's 20 times the rate. And in some cities like Chicago, for young black men, it's 40 times as much. And a large, large number of gun homicides are young black men, but they don't get attention. They don't have political clout. They don't have a voice. And for gun suicides that are 60 to 70% of the problem of gun deaths, most of the people are mentally ill and they don't get much attention. They don't have much of an impact or much of a voice. And a big part of my push in public health and global health has been towards equity and reducing inequities. And to me, in the whole injury field, we have a lot of inequities, but I think we need to bring that into sharper focus. How do we measure the inequities? How do we look at the causes what are the social economic determinants of these inequities? What works to correct the inequities? How do we measure progress towards equity? And how do you put these programs that will attack disparities in injury control rates? How do you put them into place and get them adopted as programs? I think that's a big, big area that we need to address one other thing that I think was important for me, Rod, that I would like to pass on is the importance of having good mentors. And to me, I've been very, very fortunate to have two wonderful mentors, both of whom I have now known for more than 40 years. And uh, one is Howard Hyatt, who was a former dean of the Harvard School of Public Health. And the other is Bill Fagey, who is really a giant in the field of global health. And uh, I have learned so much and my life and my work has been so enriched by my contact with these two people. I just want to suggest to other people working in the injury field that if you don't have a mentor, go get one. Develop a relationship with someone that you admire, someone that you like, someone whose approach to problems 
you think makes a lot of sense and develop the relationship, pursue it actively. Because for me, these have started as relationships with teachers and then they became friends and mentors and they turned into people whom I love and love dearly. And I think it's so invaluable. It's something that I would suggest people not leave to chance, but to go find someone. And if you have a mentor, develop that relationship, expand it, enrich it, um, bring to it the things that are important to you and that will help foster it and grow. The last thing I want to say, and I hope you won't edit this out, is that you have brought so much to this conversation because of your understanding of the field, your understanding of teaching, of learning, the longer view that you are able to take of injury control, where it started, how it evolves, and how people learn and what they become. Um, this conversation is rich because of who you are, Rod, and I hope that you'll let me do one of these reverse podcasts where I can ask you the questions and people can have their lives enriched by hearing more from you. So thank you for this chance to talk. Thank you, Dr. Rosenberg, for the last observation, uh, but also for the two prior to that. Um, I really would like to leave a big, long pause now and let nothing follow because the, the compelling case you made for equity and then the, the beautiful sort of hu human touch that came through on, on mentorship and the value of, of love being a solution uh, and, and humanity being a solution. I would like to leave that as a resounding question for us all, um, but with some hope that you gave us that we can find our way through. And look forward to chatting to you down the track about these topics as often as we can find the time. And we do have to find time for your podcast. I'll commit to that. Thank you very much for the time you've given us. We've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Mark Rosenberg. For those of you wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've discussed today, I'd encourage you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember, you can download injury prevention podcasts from your favorite platform or app on the first Thursday of each month. Music